Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're chatting with Professor Paige Harden about how genetic variations might affect our chances in life and what, if anything, we should do with this information. Life is all about luck. From the time, place and circumstances in which we were conceived, to the random assortment of genes we get from our parents, and the random assortment of genes they got from theirs. But while we're increasingly having conversations about how social, racial and other forms of privilege can give us a leg up in life, and how to level the playing field so that everyone has a fair chance, Are we ready to have the same conversation about how our random allocation in the genetic lottery might also be playing a role? And can we even separate the influence of nature from nurture for such complex issues? After years of researching, writing and reporting on how genetic variations affect our health and the importance of understanding these differences to make better tests and treatments that improve health for all, I found it curious that there are some people who believe that the influence of genes basically stops at the neck. At the same time, looking back over the horrendous eugenic legacy of genetics research and the prejudices and racism that are still around today, we also know only too well that genetic information can be used to divide and discriminate rather than help and support. Paige Harden is Professor of Psychology at the University of Texas at Austin, where she leads the Developmental Behaviour Genetics Lab and co-directs the Texas Twin Project, where she explores how genetic variations influence our behaviours and our lives. She's also the author of a new book based on her work, The Genetic Lottery, Why DNA Matters for Social Equality, which, it's fair to say, has attracted a certain amount of controversy. In it, she argues that variations in our DNA that make us different, in terms of our personalities and our health, can affect our chances of educational and economic success in life. Rather than ignoring these differences, or simply saying, well, if it's genetic, what can you do about it? She puts forward some ideas for how we can use our knowledge about genetics to achieve more equitable outcomes for everyone. To start with, I asked her how we go about studying the genetic influence on our brains, behaviours and lives. It obviously doesn't stop at the neck. And most people already know that. I talk about the study in the book where Emily Willoughby, who's a psychologist at the University of Minnesota, she and her colleagues asked a sample of lay Americans, you know, not academics, to estimate the genetic influence on diseases like diabetes or breast cancer, um, mental illnesses like schizophrenia, but also psychological traits like intelligence or personality. And what's so interesting about that study to me is that people's answers were almost never zero. So most, at least Americans, think that genetics makes an influence, not just for our bodies, but also for our brains and our psychologies. And that on average, you know, you can kind of crowdsource guesses about how much genetics influences things and people are not wildly wrong, right? So they intuit that genetics has a bigger influence on eye color than political beliefs, for instance. Their estimates on average track what heritability estimates we get from twin studies. And I'll come back to that in a second, which because twins being one method for estimating genetic influence on something. 
So we exist in this weird state of both knowing and unknowing in our conversation about genetics above the neck. By knowing, I mean that, again, most people have an intuition that genetics makes an influence for these things. They see it in their own lives. They see it observing when they observe their children, when they're thinking about why they're different from their siblings, when they're thinking about why the children in their classroom, if their teacher are different from one another. But obviously within the academy, within academics, that's a very controversial idea. And and that disconnect is interesting in and of itself. Mm. So when we're thinking about, you know, how do we go about studying this? You know, we're talking about humans And we're talking about traits over which we don't have, you know, thank goodness, we don't have strong experimental control, right? Like, So the plant geneticists can go in and they can say, okay, this is going to be exactly your rearing environment. This is going to be exactly your genotype. And I'm going to have genetically identical organisms. And human behavioral geneticists don't have that exquisite experimental control, which has, you know, really raises questions in people's minds. Are we really successfully able to disentangle correlation from causation? Can we really say that genes are causing something about people's lives? The metaphor that I use for the title of the book, The Genetic Lottery, I use that metaphor for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons that I focus the reader's attention on that is that this shuffling process that you just talked about, the fact that, you know, your mom and your dad, you had, they each had two copies of their genes, and they got shuffled together and you got one. You got one random draw from that. And your sibling got another random draw. It is being able to measure the genome and then look at how family members, parents and children, siblings, differ from one another in their genetics because of this random shuffle of genetic inheritance that is really one of the most powerful tools that we have right now to say, okay, this isn't just genes are correlated with life outcomes. Genes are really causing something about the development of intelligence, personality, how far people go in school. So, you know, the old method was to look at samples of twins, usually identical twins versus fraternal twins, raised together, or children raised by their biological parents versus adoptive parents. So that's kind of one type of natural experiment. These are people who have a social, you know, the same sort of social relationship as family members, but different genetic relationships. And those types of designs, I think, are still really valuable. You know, I still collect twin data. And now, because we can measure the genome directly, very cheaply and non-invasively from people's saliva, we can take advantage of this other natural experiment, which is this, you know, the shuffling of genes between parents and children to look at, okay, if I happen to inherit this sequence versus this sequence, how is that related to how my life ends up differently than, say, my siblings who inherited a kind of a different random draw from our parents? So you've talked about using things like twin studies to try and even out this influence of, of nature and nurture, but Whenever we talk about things like life outcomes, you know, I'm assuming there's not a getting more money gene or a having a nice house gene. <laughs> of course or, not. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's, there's not a nice big house gene. But how do we tease out the nature from the nurture? Because, you know, social inequalities must have a, a huge influence. And also, you know, families that are living in poor areas, maybe their children are staying in poor areas. Like, how are we, how can we actually start to 
untangle some of this because you know I, yeah. I know about the principle of doing genome-wide association studies you find lots of people you see who's got the trait you see which genetic variations associate with that trait but with something like life outcomes how do we really start to tease this apart because obviously it's a yeah. it's a really big issue yeah so I mean in one sense they're never teased apart because they're always in the life of an individual they're always obviously interacting you know there is no development without both genes and a social environment and also there's in many ways no way of conceptualizing the long-term outcomes of genes without thinking about ways in which your social environment responds to you to your sort of embodied psychology so you know in my mind the goal of cleanly separating this is nature and this is nurture is really kind of the wrong goal. I'm more interested in, well, we know that the effects of nature, quote unquote, are sort of always bound up with what is our social context and vice versa. You know, people who live in the same social context, who even are raised in the same home with the same parents, go on to lead different lives. So I guess I would just reframe the question as we're not kind of surgically peeling away some sort of, you know, we're not wielding some scalpel that says this is the purely biological bit and this is the purely social bit. It's more like tracing, okay, if you, you know, if you start in different points genetically, how does your life then kind of wind its way through the social environment such that those kind of initial starting points can end up being in part because of how they're responded to by the social environment, end up being consequential in the long term. So this is really, we're dealing in possibilities, not determinism. Oh, always. Yes. I mean, so often when people are first introduced to genetics, they're thinking of, you know, they learn about genetics in the context of, you know, maybe single gene disorders. The gene four, yeah. The gene (laughs) four, right. Right. So you have PKU and you have the, so you have this quote unquote inborn error of metabolism or disease of metabolism. And it's, you know, it's influenced by one gene with a very strong effect or something like Down syndrome, which is, a, you know, trisomy. You have three copies of your 21st chromosome rather than two. And the thing about those sorts of genetic relationships is that they're specific. So this gene is, you know, it is the gene for this thing. They're pretty uniform. So if you have three copies of your 21st chromosome, you're going to have downs. And that's going to be true regardless of whether you were born in 15th century France or present day North Korea. You know, it's kind of constant across time and place. And they're explanatory, right? Like we can say, like, if I know something about what this gene is, I can tell mechanistically something about, you know, the the biology of this disorder, When we're talking about genetic influences on intelligence or education or income, those are entirely different types of genetic effects. They're not specific. They're not uniform. They're not explanatory. It's not like downs being caused by a trisomy. It's like how, you know, maybe Instagram makes you more likely to be depressed but only for some people. And it doesn't guarantee that you're going to be depressed. It just raises the probability that you're going to be depressed. And we have to consider context and the person. The sorts of genetic facts that we are looking at in modern human behavioral genetics are not here's your wealth gene. It's 
if you got this constellation of genetic variants, to what extent is the, you know, the probability of your life going differently changed? And it could be a big change, but it could be a little change. But it's never the cause. It's always happening and sort of in concert with, with the environments that people are living in. So I want to dig into an area that that gets pretty sticky pretty fast, because in the field of genetics over recent years, we've seen people using, you know, genetic information and and genetics, um, particularly trying to put sort of quite a, a frankly appalling, like racist spin on it. We've seen, you know, white supremacists using genetics as a way of categorizing and, and discriminating against people. So is there a risk that when we start to do this kind of research, we're almost, you know, going back to the the days of Francis Galton, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uber eugenicist and this kind of thing, and and really running the risk of starting to dig into information that puts people in boxes that they shouldn't be put into? How do we deal with this? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is yes, in the sense that, you know, all technology has risks and risks of being misunderstood and misused and misappropriated to kind of prop up narratives. In this case, you know, people seizing on genetic key sounding information in order to, you know, to say this is my support for my kind of racist idea about, you know, really white supremacy is is the reason way that it's most commonly used. In the same way that we see, you know, information on public health and virology being used by anti-vaccine advocates or the ways in which we see that, you know, the rise of social media predictive algorithms can be used in ways that perpetuate algorithmic bias. We're kind of hard pressed to think of an advanced technology that doesn't have both real risks of being misused, you know, of being used for harm, but also this risk of it's a technical field where most people don't have a super strong scientific foundation in it. So it's easy for people to come in and kind of come up with scientific sounding stories to support their argument. At the same time, some of the most, I think, powerful demonstrations of why those narratives about white supremacy are wrong come from genetics. You know, when we teach people about the amount of genetic diversity that exists within ancestral groups that are, at least here in the U.S., all lumped together as one race. When people are taught about the ways in which, you know, the genetic research that's happening right now really is, you know, limited to people who only have European ancestry and how much we just don't know at all about other populations. Um, I don't think we should undersell the fact that knowledge is power and that power could be used for ill, but also it could be used to combat these really pernicious racist narratives. You know, there, there isn't kind of one side that owns the science. There isn't one side whose political ideology, however extreme, is going to be quote unquote helped by the science. You know, when we look at genetics, we see evidence for this incredible you know, this incredible human diversity that doesn't fall along these kind of neat stories that people tell about race. And I think that information is really powerful for people to know to kind of blow up some of their own myths about these kind of things. 
it never has ceased to amaze me that we talk so much in genetics about, you know, oh, this disease and this link and this and that. And it's all come from these genome-wide association studies that are 95% or or probably 90% now because it is improving, but from European ancestry populations when most of the world is is not. And yet we try and generalise this information to everybody and, you know, even everybody from a different ethnic background in the same country. That, That seems flawed to me. It's deeply flawed, right? And, you know, if we think about even what you might think of as quite basic traits, you know, we we might think, well, the genetics of skin pigmentation is probably easier to work out than the genetics of intelligence. We see that when researchers actually do studies that capture more of the genetic diversity, particularly from African ancestry populations, they discover genes related to skin pigmentation that they didn't know about, that we didn't know about because they didn't you know, have sufficient variation in Northern European populations to even be there to study. So if you think about how that's true for skin tone, you know, how much more true is that going to be for anything like a medical disorder or a social behavioral disorder? You know, one thing that I think is kind of a blessing in disguise is that when you do a genetic study of educational attainment in predominantly Northern European populations, it's easy for people to look at that and say, well, of course that doesn't generalize. Like we can't say that we know something about the genetics of these same traits in the kind of the broader share of the population. And yes, they're exactly right. And that's also true for medical genetics. That's also true for everything below the neck too. So to some extent, the the fact that behavioral genetics sort of focuses people's attention on the problems that are inherent in this lack of representation of diversity, I think that's a good thing because those problems don't just attend psychological studies, they attend all of our studies. I think you use the example in your book, and it's one that I've come back to again, of like the chopsticks gene, where yeah. you know, it's a sort of the apocryphal story where they gather loads and loads of genetic data from a load of students in a university and discover a particular genetic variation that associates with using chopsticks. And it's like, uh, actually, it's it's just a genetic variation that's more prevalent in Asian populations and they're the people who yeah. use chopsticks. So it's like, that tells you nothing. Yeah. That's not the chopsticks gene. Exactly. And I think that comes back to, again, this metaphor of the lottery. You know, people have tried to overcome this chopsticks gene problem. You know, technically it's called the problem of population stratification, which is, well, genetic variants differ because of, you know, the long arm of human history, of demography, of culture, of mating, of, you know, the way that societies are stratified within and across, you know, within countries and across countries. And so there's always this question about if you, you know, if you find a, a genetic variant, a DNA difference that's correlated with some outcome, is that because the DNA variant is doing something in your body that through a long chain of events ultimately changes your probability of showing some outcome? Or is it just that you've happened to measure a group of people who by virtue of class or geography or culture or history are more likely to experience this outcome for environmental reasons and also more likely to differ in their distribution of their genetic variants. There's no magic bullet to that question. The closest thing we do have, again, is back to this random shuffling of genes between parents as there's this process of genetic adherence from parents to children, which is why we're never going to get away 
without studying family members. No matter how many people we genotype, if we really want to be confident that we're not running into this chopstick genes problem, we need to be studying not, you know, people who are conventionally unbiologically related, but parents and children and siblings and pedigrees of people in order to be confident about that. At the same time, we can't just be doing, you know, the way that people without studying family members have have overcome this problem is that they'll say, okay, well, I'm going to study people who identify as white British and who are genetically as homogenous with regards to their ancestry as possible. And that, as we know, is both bad for science and it's exclusionary. So the direction of studying more families you know, it's one of the things that allows us to be more inclusive in our science. And I think that's really important. So if we're coming from a point of view that genetics has at least some influence on life outcomes, exactly how much, we're not sure, but we acknowledge that it's there, then mm-hmm. what do we do about it? Because I think, you know, in, in genetics, we can, uh, when particularly when we're talking about biomedical genetics, the urge to fix, we find the genes and then we fix the genes. We develop drugs <laughs> or we go, oh, maybe you can do genetic engineering. Or when you start kind of going back to the, the scary stuff, like, you know, embryo selection and, and all these kinds of things. So what do we do with this genetic information? Because I, it's clear that society is is incredibly unequal and that's not just on a genetic level that's on like a deep societal problem level so how do we use like this this genetic information and all the society stuff like what do we do about it to actually make people's lives better yeah and and you know that is such a huge question and i will say up front that you know the book attempts to answer that question from my perspective which is you know as someone who has a particular set of egalitarian values and political values, how do I see genetics fitting into that? So I think one one conversation that I'd like to see more of in the wake of the book is, you know, beginning with the premise that you just started here, which was like, okay, well, we can quibble about how much, but given that it's not zero, how then do we conceptualize equality? What then do we do next with it? And I think that there's going to be competing views on that. So my, you know, kind of my personal view is one in which I really have been influenced by Rawls, by Dworkin, by a number of other philosophers who have written more generally about, you know, well, what do we do about the fact that there's luck in people's lives? We are used to thinking about this already when we think about kind of social luck, right? So if we look at children and some are born into, you know, well-off, stable, happy homes, and some are born into chaotic or abusive or low-income homes that, you know, just are like characterized by material deprivation, You know, we look at that and we say, well, that's a source of luck in their lives, right? It's not the child's fault that they were born into this family that had this environment. What do we need to do in order to bring about more equality in those children's ultimate life chances? You know, what do we need to do to make it so that your life is not narrowly gated by the circumstances of your birth? And that's the frame of reference that I want people to bring into our discussion of genetics. So if we look and see, okay, you know, genes are related to some extent to how your life goes. A big part of that in the U.S. and UK, in the U.K. operates through how genetics influences 
your success in school because so many social inequalities are structured by school performance. What do we owe each other regardless of how they fared in either this social or this natural lottery of birth? A really obvious example in the United States is the ways in which we tie so healthcare access, just like being able to go to the doctor, being able to have access to medicine. We tie that to employment, which is itself tied to education. And so we've built something that is kind of pinned to the outcome of this genetic lottery in some way, right? We can look at a connection between which genes you happen to be born with and whether or not you're able to go to the doctor when you're sick. And I want people to question that. I want people to think about, well, what are the sorts of things that we're comfortable sort of having contingent on the outcome of this genetic lottery? And what sort of social goods need to be unhinged from that, unpinned from that? You know, what sort of things do we owe each other regardless of genotype, regardless of genetically influenced psychological traits in certain ways? And people's answers to that questions can differ, but I think that's very, I think that's a different frame than is often brought to bear on our conversations about genetics. A lot of times genetics is accused of naturalizing inequality. You know, if something's quote unquote genetic, there's nothing we can do about it. There's no no use fixing it. And like it's set in stone. And that's obviously like total bollocks, right? Like we intervene in genetically influenced traits all the time. If you're wearing eyeglasses, you are a living example of that in this exact moment. The fact that something is genetically influenced doesn't mean that it's inexorable or unfixable with social policy. It does mean, however, that we are currently structuring something such that that outcome is, again, pinned to this lottery of birth. And I want people to think about, well, maybe we're okay with, for instance, your likelihood of getting a PhD in electrical engineering being related to you know, you happen to get a certain set of genetic variants that make you very interested in spatial rotation. But we're not comfortable. We don't think it's a good society to the extent that your your access to healthcare or your access to libraries or your access to green space is dependent on sort of success in education, success in school. So that's, you know, the, the big push that I'm trying to get people away from is instead of thinking of genetics as natural or genetics as inevitable, genetics meaning that this is the only world we can live in, instead thinking about genetics as a tool for seeing which inequalities between people are currently in our social structures tied to this random shuffling of genotypes and which one of these do we want them to be? tied to that? Which of those chains do we want to break, actually? Thanks to Paige Harden for chatting with me. Her book, The Genetic Lottery, Why DNA Matters for Social Equality, is out now wherever books are sold. And it's certainly a thought-provoking read, whether you agree with her or not. That's the last of our new shows for 2021. We'll be back in January 2022 with brand new interviews and stories. So make sure you're subscribed through your podcatcher of choice so you don't miss a single episode. Next time, I'll be bringing you a roundup of our favourite bits of the year and we'll be republishing a few of our old favourites over the Christmas break for your listening pleasure. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, 
at Genetics Unzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference and it does help more people to discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle, and audio production is by the fabulous Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.